Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show, episode 41. Uh, hard to believe, 41. And we're going to dive right into it. we got a lot to talk about today. Start at the top with the guy everybody's talking about for reasons on and off the field, uh, Shohei Otani. Hit his major league leading 33rd home run. He had 34 last night. 34. He hit his 34th last night. He's expected to make his start on Friday despite a finger problem that has hampered him his last three starts. He's been bothered by a blister and a cracked fingernail and had to leave Friday's start in the sixth. Through an interpreter, he said, for the most part, things just didn't go the way I wanted. It's kind of been like that when I was on the mound. I haven't really thought about it when my next outing is. I'm just going to come to the field, see where my finger's at, and go from there. Not an uncommon problem. Um, certainly something that uh, guys deal with. I played with guys who dealt with this, and it, it can be pretty nasty. You'll get what you get is, uh, and nine times out of ten, it, it's on the on the, the pointer finger because that's the lead finger and the finger that creates a lot of friction in the ball. I never, uh, ever had a blister problem. It's just Nolan Ryan had it early in his career, and he used to talk about he'd soak his hand in pickle Ryan. So I don't know what that means. And there are other guys who have dealt with it. It can be, I mean, it's one of those things where you think, oh my God, really? A blister? It's a blister in a place that is absolutely meaningful and important uh, to a pitcher, and that's feel for on your finger. And it comes and goes. One of the things that you see a lot of guys doing is trying to find some uh, home remedy to to fix it because it, it's it, it it can come and go through an entire season. And there's no, I don't, I used to never be able to figure out what the trigger was because um, some guys would get it and it turn. And again, it turns out you're you, you're bleeding. You have no ability to to grip the baseball, and then you, the skin gets so dry that the nail cracks. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how that affects anything, but it's something to pay attention to. And something not more, I think more than the uh, uh, Angels are looking at, because he is at the front and center of the trade deadline discussion. Uh, but I do want to talk about something as sports fans, you need to pay attention to. I would tell you that 90 plus percent of the rumors that you read about are complete BS. And they're this re for this reason. So if you, I don't know if you saw, there's a couple of websites yesterday that talked about the Angels' asking price starts with two top 100 prospects, which apparently was pitched, as the Angels have said, behind closed doors, which is 100% false. Actually, MLB Network's John Morosi wrote an article talking about a trade and, and that it, he thinks it's unlikely, but uh, what has changed is that the Angels have discussed internally as an organization and realized that uh, with where they're at in the standings, they have no choice but to listen. Morrissey went on to say, if the Angels get multiple players offered among the top 100 prospects in the game, they have to at least start thinking about it. He started the rumor. That's the rumor. And that led to other uh, outlets saying, Angels wanted at least two top 100 prospects. Angels never said that. John Moore, they didn't tell John Moore. I promise you they didn't tell John Morrissey that either. That is a writer speculating the way writers speculate and creating news out of news that doesn't exist. Of course, the Anaheim Angels are going to want two top-rated prospects to begin a deal talk with, which, you know, you start to look around teams and, and much like the Otani free agency, which is going to be you know, a three to five team market, probably tops. That's a no brainer. Of course, they want two top rated prospects. You knew that. I knew that. Everybody else knew that. that's not a rumor. That's that's writers creating content where content doesn't exist. But yes, the, the angels have to listen. And when you talk about the suitors at the deadline and the suitors at free agency, they're two different, completely two different pools. The Tampa Bay Rays are suitors at the deadline. They're not even remotely in play as a free agent. And there are other teams, uh, you look around the game at the young prospects, Baltimore, Arizona, 
uh, a, a bunch of teams, not a bunch, but a, enough that they could make a deal. Uh, the question is, those teams are renting, right? They're renting Otani. They're not getting compensated in the draft for him because he's not a player that played on their roster the whole year. So they don't get a pick or picks and they're giving up young prospects. This is for a team that makes this is, is saying, we believe we can win the World Series and this guy puts us over the top. And he's a player that that might actually do that. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see who and what happens. Um, but along with uh, that news out of Anaheim, Mike Trout underwent surgery uh, a little over 10 days ago for a left hamate fracture. And a hamate is a little bone, you'll, and you'll hear a lot about it. It's, it used to be a thing. Uh, the hamate's a little bone that sticks up uh, at the base of your thumb, and it's like a hook. And tendons run under the hamate. And what happens is the top of the hamate breaks off and the, and the tendon's free to roam in the hand. And it's very painful. Uh, and it happens a lot because of the way guys used to grip the bat with a knob on the edge of their hands. He's out for four to eight weeks. So Which he's means he's not-, not back before the August 1st deadline. Right. He's not a guy people are going to talk about at the and, deadline. And they're two games under 500 right now. So yeah. obviously the speculation of whether the Angels are going to consider it, that plays into it. Well, here's the other piece. Draft compensation is now in the form of of draft picks. Um, And some teams value draft picks as much, if not more so, than a veteran player. Many teams do. But if he leaves, they get a pick. That's it. Do you make a deal? I think you make a deal. You get a couple of prospects and you ask for a team's compensation pick or uh, early round pick to offset the loss of the draft pick. Otherwise, there's no point in keeping it. They're not going to make it. They're not going to contend. I don't think they're good enough to contend now, and he's going to leave. So he leaves, and you have nothing to show for it, or he leaves, and you have something to show for it. The one thing I read, Kurt, that was interesting was, so you make the trade as the Angels. You get the prospects. You get the picks. You still, at the end of the season, can go bid on them. The problem is, I think the opposite is almost true now for Shohei in the sense that instead of a hometown discount, I think the Angels will have to overpay. Right. Because they're not winning, and they haven't won. He's made it clear he wants to go somewhere and play on a winner. Not that he wouldn't listen to and, and you know, the familiarity is probably a huge thing. Uh, I don't know how much of a, a deal that is for, for him, because um, he's already made an enormous adjustment, adjusting from Japan to the United States. So, you know, going from Anaheim to, well... New York might be a little different animal, but but there are other markets in here that won't be as big a deal as the, the change he's already made. Uh, on to uh, another superstar, who, <laughs> Bryce Harper. 166 plate appearances between home runs. He's back. He's going to actually start playing defense soon, which is huge. First home run since May. He's gone 166 at-bats, and it's uh, Bryce Harper's Bryce Harper. He'll end up with his numbers he's supposed to end up with. And it's uh, just, I think, the fourth homerless drought of at least 20 games, which I don't even know what that means other than it's a number. Harper's fine. Craig Kimbrell, uh, as relievers are wont to do, uh, they'll be out in the bullpen, and the smart ones will catch it in towel. Craig Kimbrell caught it barehanded, to which uh, Harper in the postgame said, that was really stupid. I already talked to him. It was terrible. You can't do that. I mean, nice catch, but come on, man. little funny exchange there. And then uh, they're talking about uh, Harper going to first base uh, against the Brewers this week. First time he's been in the field since the 16th of April last year, and that's a big deal. 
That's a, because that tells you that the the everything is fine with the arm. And I think anyway, you're much less concerned about uh, Tommy John with the position player than you would ever be with a pitcher. Uh, next story is one we've talked about. I think almost every show. Uh, the Orioles uh, won their eighth straight, 57-35, 22 games above 500, six games. Up in the American League wild card, one game behind the Rays in the East. I don't know how else to say it. They're for real. And they've done that all without, I think, one of the premier prospects in the game, Grayson Rodriguez, has not found his groove yet. He is back up, though, this week. Yep. So we'll see a start this week, and that will be fascinating to see because in his minor league assignments, I believe his ERA was under two. One of the important things to note, when you send a young kid down, the next call-up is crucial from the prospect of you feel like mentally he did what he needed to do, much more so than physically, because what you don't want to have is a kid who comes back up, struggles, and says, you know, can I actually do this? For the first time, most guys are like, yeah, okay, you know what, I was overmatched, but I'll figure it out. You go down and, and quote-unquote fix things and come back and things don't work out again, you start having thoughts that aren't conducive to being successful. So clearly they feel like he's made the mental adjustment they need, need to make. And it, he again, he's an ace. He's the top of the rotation guy. If he comes up and flips it on, uh, look out. The Orioles are looking up at the Rays, who are three and seven in their last 10. And all of a sudden, they're a game back going, you know what? It's late July. We're playing with them. Oh, no. The, the, and the, this is, I can, I can tell you, I know this. The Baltimore Oriole Clubhouse is probably one of the most enjoyable places to be in the big leagues right now. Um, in 1993, we went from 92 finishing last to 93 winning the division in one of the most amazing seasons in history. And when that happens, there is literally no pressure. It is fun. You are enjoying the hell out of coming to the park, especially in a city like Baltimore. Young talent. Um, there'll be buyers at the deadline, too. Uh, I don't know to what extent. But they'll uh, if they can make something happen, I think they will. Well, and um, and their minor league system is packed with right, prospects. Right, right. So no, they can buy something. They could be a potential Otani deal, right? I mean, if right. They, it's not the cash for the trade is not a big deal right now in the sense of of 2023 budgets. If you're losing them at the end of the year, you have a stack of pro. This is why you stack your system. You know, people always ask about. You know, why did they draft five pitchers in the first five rounds? They've got five top pitching pro. Well, this is why. Because when the time comes and the deadline's here, it doesn't matter. You can always thin out your excess and bring in uh, a guy like Otani. They're for real. I, uh, I would have no problem. We're getting ready to hit the part of the year that none, uh, many of them haven't experienced, which is, uh, you know, meaningful playoff caliber type games in August and September. I think they'll be fine. Because youthful exuberance sometimes will will delay the dog day fatigue. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how they manage Adley Rushman behind the plate so they can get to the playoffs without him being gassed. It'll be interesting. Uh, on the flip side, another team that we've been following, uh, the Reds got shut out by the Brewers on Sunday for their third straight loss to Milwaukee. Cincinnati became the first team in 130 years to record fewer than eight hits and no runs. In a three-game span, <laughs> the Brewers pitched their butts off. They played six. This is this is where, you know, we talked about the schedule. Those games in your division become crucial. They just played six games uh, right before the break, and the Brewers went five and one. Picked up four games on them. Craig Council's got them playing, but the Reds are there. The Reds are in it, and they're for real. During the Yankees-Rockies game, and this was uh, the Yankees led three to one in the eighth inning. 
uh, and then a seven to five in the eleventh. They lost the game eight to seven. This is the first loss in Yankees history where they had lead multiple leads of two plus runs in the eighth inning or later and lost. They now are in last place in the AL East. The things wrong with this team are, are literally too too numerous to list. Number one, their health is a big thing. Their health is an issue. They've had injuries just like everybody else, but the fact is they've um they've had their and, and they've had guys have underperformed. Uh, horribly underperformed, you know, not having um, their big free agent signing from Jump Street. Rodon and Nestor Cortez. Rodon is back. Yep, yep, Cortez yep. is not. That's been a huge piece of this, but they just underperformed. Wow. In a divi- and they've underperformed in a division where some teams have overperformed in, in Baltimore that, that you didn't expect. But also, you know, um, there is no Patsy in the AL East. So your divisional schedule is a, is a tough one. Their batting is, they have the fourth worst batting average in yeah. Major League Baseball and the fifth worst OBP. Right. Well, that's why they brought that's in. That's not Sean, Yankee baseball. No, no, no. That's why they brought in Sean Casey. Sean Casey was a high on base percentage, high batting average guy. Teaching an, a, 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 a contact approach for a lineup like that is probably one of the keys to getting them back on track. You can coach all you want. If the players can't execute, it doesn't matter. The Braves had, on Saturday of last week, Eddie Rosario hit a a home run the fourth for the Braves, which extended their uh, franchise record streak to 28 straight games with a home run. 28 straight games with a home run. This team is just, holy crap. Ended on Sunday, though. They didn't home run an 8-1 loss, and uh, the streak ended. But the Braves, uh, I have a hard time seeing anybody overtake the Braves in the East. The Braves have won 30 of their last 40 games. Yeah, 30 and 10. Yep. And they're not doing it any one way. They're doing it as a well-rounded, solid, top-to-bottom team. And that's probably um, probably but has more to do with anything. Uh, Manny Machado hit his 300th home run. It's weird because Manny Machado seems like a young guy to me. Um, he's not, clearly, but uh, hit his 300th home run uh, despite the fact that the Padres continue to lose. I think they're sneaking under the radar as an underachiever this year uh, in a big way because I think a lot of the New York stuff is is taken uh, precedence in the news, but the Padres struggling is is a huge story given the amount of money invested in that payroll and the talent on that team. Going to be very interesting to see what they do at the deadline if they try and dump a contract. Again, these are just rumors, but – Blake Snell has been out there that if they decide to sell, they'll sell Juan Soto potentially, who is only under contract through next year. That'll tell you a lot by August 1st. Yeah. Uh, Again, two players, uh, Snell probably more so than Soto, that could be moved. Speaking of the AL West, the Dodgers are hot, uh, but not as hot as Mookie Betts. In his last 10 games, he's hitting 420 with five homers and nine RBIs, and I, I don't find that remotely surprising. Still think it's one of the worst trades the Red Sox ever made. Or not trades. It's one of the worst moves the Red Sox ever made. Um, in a city that has had accusations of uh, racism for decades and decades and decades, uh, I think one of the easiest solutions to fixing that would have been signing the best player in the game to a multi-year contract uh, with money you had. Uh, them screwing that up didn't do any. Didn't do them any favors. A guy who was loved in that city, Kurt. Well, he's he, loved for all the right reasons, too. Yeah. He, he's, he, he's legit. He's genuine. He's legit, but he was also a great citizen in well, Boston. Yeah. And 
Yeah, well, there that was one a, there was still story, doesn't make sense to me. There was a story, I think, around the time when he left about uh, him being found in a soup kitchen on a Sunday morning, day of a game, serving breakfast to homeless people. No media. There was a, it was an accidental discovery, but that's Mookie. Fenway Group doesn't want people like that on their ball club. Nope. Well, we- you, it, 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 like here's the, the honest discussion, though, Bill. You, it's not that they don't want everybody wants Mookie Betts. The question is why didn't they? Right. You, and you, I go back to John Lester to start this discussion. Why didn't they resign John Lester? Why didn't they they make sure they had Mookie Betts? And then they you know they gave Devers the contract that Betts probably should have gotten, um, which is fine. But you're talking about uh, an up the middle franchise centerpiece leader in the minority community, heavily influential, phenomenal character, phenomenal talent, everything you could want in a player makes you wonder. Yeah, that, love, you know that one and, totally. And the top five list uh, this week was my top five favorite parks to pitch at. And I, I uh, this is going to have some odd answers in the sense that all of my home parks, uh, Arizona, uh, Bank One, it was Bank One at the time, the old Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, and um, Fenway Park in, in Boston. Those were all three. When I went there to play there, they were my favorite parks because I love the consistency and the feel and the fans, and they were always a part of it. There, I had different feelings around different parks. Believe it or not, the park that I felt the most comfortable, physically comfortable in was the old uh, Stade Olympique in Montreal. Uh, my numbers there were insane. And and it was all about the field. In in, in that stadium, there was a, uh, a, a glass divide between home plate, very close to home plate. And people were in it. I felt like I was throwing in a batting cage in, in a good way. It felt I loved the feeling of pitching there. It felt just right. Whereas... In Dodger Stadium, where I, I feel like I threw well, I despised it because home plate was two and a half miles from the backstop, and a pass ball was like three bases. But the field behind me was enormous. But I felt I was always about the atmosphere, the way uh, my work, my office looked and felt. And I like to have kind of a, a enclosed area. Wrigley, I Wrigley, I, I felt comfortable in Wrigley. It felt very short. But I hated pitching there because it, you could make a great pitch and give up anything. I, it just felt – but the fans were awesome. Um, I loved Yankee Stadium for the atmosphere. But my home parks always became my favorite parks. Montreal, I would probably have to put uh, – um, Montreal and Yankee Stadium as the other two parks. I pitched in the old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Not enough. Camden Yards I threw in as a visitor. Didn't like it because it was too small. I enjoy. I, I really did enjoy pitching in Arizona in Bank One, even though that was a hitter's ballpark. But uh, yeah, you pitched in two hitters' ballparks because the old vet was not a hitter's ballpark. Yeah, it, it, the problem with the old vet was the turf, right? Um, but Bank One was was definitely a hitter's ballpark. Fenway was a um, you could turn it into a pitcher's ballpark by pitching to right field as much as possible. I pitched in the old Astrodome, which was terrible only in the sense that first of all, it was huge, which was great, but there was only ever like 58 people in watching a game when I was there in 1991. So it was like pitching a spring training game. My sense watching games in the Astrodome was it was the darkest stadium there was. The lighting wasn't great. It just never showed up on TV. Well, yeah, I never heard hitters complain about it. I had a good background. I'll tell you the one that really surprised me. Um, Hitters, 
complained and hate uh, Milwaukee. And I know that I, I punched out 17 in my career high in that a park there. And and I remember the hitters talking about the fact that it was a nightmare hitters background in Milwaukee. Horrible park to hit in. Uh, and I don't remember it being any different than most. That's a big deal to hitters, uh, obviously, the background. And I know of teams that used to just completely screw with hitters. They would give away white T-shirts to, to center field bleacher fans on purpose. <laughs> they would just do all kinds of goofy stuff. And then center field, uh, and it was funny too, because ballparks were almost in a sense, some were built to be conducive to cheating. And I say that in the sense the scoreboard was put in a place in the, in the, in the white, after Comiskey park, the, the Chicago white Sox ballpark, uh, for the first couple of years, they put, uh, they had, uh, lights on the lower left and lower right of the scoreboard that would go on and off for fastball breaking ball. And, and Jack McDowell basically told everybody this after he retired. <laughs> but I I knew going in because for some I don't know why I saw it, but it was one of those things I always used to take in for stadiums. You could, it, it, they used it. And there were not every hitter, but certain hitters. They would flat this one would be on for a fastball, this one would be on for breaking ball. And it's like, wow, okay. And and I gotta tell you, while that seems to be cheating, like I, I never thought that it was. I thought it was just using your home that's home field advantage. They didn't bang garbage cans, which is probably a little bit different, but uh no, those, those I, I I had I had the the luxury of pitching in stadiums with fans that were great, which made fans make a stadium in a lot of ways. Um, you know, where I pitched, fan, the fans made and and like I said, Yankee Stadium was one of my favorite places in the world to pitch because of the history. Number one, but the fan base there was so awesome uh, and so filthy. You know, I heard things about my family that I've never heard since uh, in Yankee Stadium, but it was well, all there good. Are very few rivalries either that you pitched in that right. were better than right. that yeah yeah no that's definitely you know Phillies Mets was a good rivalry uh, yep. uh you know Orioles Red but I think uh Red Sox Yankees is at the pinnacle of sports rivalry so uh we are going to have some interviews coming up uh not necessarily this Friday but soon uh catching up with a former teammate of mine Doug Mirabelli uh been talking to John Lester Roger Clemens hopefully will uh will join us at some point in the near future and we'll bring you some really cool stuff from them until then you guys have a wonderful week uh anywhere you get your podcasts uh we'd love you to go to outkick.com uh click on the the label up right that says shows and podcasts and you can find it there Spotify Apple Podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts you can find uh the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show please spread the word and I'll see you at the end of the week Bill <laughs> <laughs> 